Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 64. I am on the road getting interviews, witnessing events, being part of all sorts of things for the new book. I just left a Donald Trump rally in Macon, Georgia. And uh, yes, I witnessed applause and cheers for waterboarding. And I saw people booing for the very idea of climate change. Now I'm headed to Los Angeles to spend time with uh, abortion rights activists, and I'm just going all over the place. I also have some inter- new interviews for this show. I just recently interviewed Mike Regnetta of PBS Idea Channel. We talked all about knowing things and knowledge and uh, theories of knowledge, in addition to talking about um, cognitive biases, as we always talk about. But more importantly, we talked about logical fallacies. You will soon hear a whole series of episodes about different logical fallacies. Look for that soon. Also, I just finished interviewing Stephen Lewandowski, who wrote the Debunking Handbook, and we talked all about what it takes to try to squash misinformation, and it's just going to be great. There's all sorts of really cool stuff coming up, but I'm on the road, so this episode is a rebroadcast. This is an interview you're about to hear. It's great. This is one of my favorite interviews ever. I I was able to ask a lot of questions that I've always wanted to understand, and I asked them of psychologist Lori Santos. She heads the Comparative Cognition Laboratory at Yale University. In that lab, she and her colleagues are exploring the fact that when two species share a relative on the evolutionary family tree, not only do they share similar physical features, but they also share similar behaviors. And psychologists and other scientists have used animals to study humans for a very long time, but Santos and her colleagues have taken it a step further by choosing to focus on a closer relation, the capuchin monkey, and that way they can investigate subtler, more complex aspects of human decision-making, like cognitive biases. One of her most fascinating lines of research came from training monkeys how to use money. Now, that by itself is worthy of a jaw drop or two. It's, it's crazy. It's true. Monkeys can be taught how to trade tokens for food, and for years, Santos has observed capuchin monkeys attempting to solve the same sort of financial problems humans have attempted in prior experiments. And what Santos and others have discovered is it's really, really amazing. Monkeys and humans seem to be prone to the same biases. And when it comes to money, they seem to make the same kind of mistakes. Santos and her colleagues have created something that they call the monkey marketplace. And it's an enclosure where those monkeys can comparison shop with their tokens. And inside, human merchants offer deals for things. 
with grapes and apples. And some of those deals are better than others. And some are risky and some safe. And you'll hear all about it. All of that's coming up in this interview with Lori Santos right after this break. Why is it if you are asking people to donate blood and they're doing it, you're getting all sorts of donations and you're offering nothing in return, maybe a cookie just so that they can walk out without fainting. Why is it if you start paying people for donating blood, people stop donating? Why is that? Why is it that the person who wins the bronze medal is happier than the person who wins the silver medal? Every single time we go out there and research this, we find that the person in third place is way happier, way more satisfied with the outcome than the person in second place. Why is that? How can that be true? Well, if you want to know, if you want to know all about it, you need to get Behavioral Economics When Psychology and Economics Collide, taught by Professor Scott Hutel of Duke University, 24 lectures, each one with dozens of insights into decision-making. You find about randomness and patterns and how much evidence does a person need, the value of experience, heuristics and biases, temporal discounting, risk, probability weighting, group decision-making, vox populi stuff. I'm telling you, incentives, why they backfire. This is the stuff you want to know about why people are so weird. It's behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide from the great courses. You know I love the great courses. It's, it's one of the most amazing programs for learning deeply, deeply learning about so many subjects that fascinate me in science and psychology, but also all sorts of other things from art to philosophy to history. Whatever you're into, they have it because they have 500 different subjects for you to grab and get many, many lectures in each one. And then they're, they're courses. They're really courses. They're many lectures on one topic and they're videos, they're audio, they're coming from streaming apps. You can get them on your computer or on your smartphone or any other device, or you can pop it in the car. You can listen to it on your commute. You can watch it on your TV. It's fantastic. I cannot speak highly enough about the great courses and they are giving my listeners a great offer so that you can, you can get a course today and you can order from eight of their best selling courses, including the one I just talked about behavioral economics at 80% off the original price, 80% off. Now, this offer is only available for a limited time. You have to order it today or roundabouts close to today. Whenever you're listening to this, it's probably either over or almost over. You better rush and get it 80% off by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. Lori Santos is a professor of psychology who got her degree at Harvard and now she teaches at Yale. And she says in her own words, her research explores an age old question, what makes the human mind unique? And she says that she tests this question by studying the cognitive capacities of non-human animals. Wait till you hear what she has discovered. Let's pick her brain.
First of all, uh, Lori, you have one of the coolest jobs in the world. So, <laughs> so would you mind uh, describing what exactly happens at your comparative cognition laboratory? Yeah, sure. So uh, I am interested in both the smart and dumb things that make people special. Um, and I study that question by uh, studying how other primates make decisions. Um, and so uh, we have a colony of capuchin monkeys. Um, it's like a big zoo enclosure of monkeys. And we do a bunch of studies with them about how they make decisions. Uh, we also do some work at a field site known as Cayo Santiago, which is an island off the coast of Puerto Rico that's home to about a thousand free-ranging monkeys. So they kind of run around and do their monkey thing and we can show up and set up studies to try to look at how they think about the world. Well, this is, uh, I, I think a lot of people are going to hear that and they're going to immediately think, um, you're studying people by studying monkeys. And yep. so, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, re I'm really, I'm really happy to have you on the show because I think that, um, the, the reason why you do that, and I'll give you a chance to answer why that is, is because I think that anyone who begins to learn about uh, biases and heuristics and fallacies and all that stuff will usually begin to wonder what are the origins of these these irrational behaviors and decision-making models and all this stuff. And one of the biggest questions in psychology is always about uh, whether or not uh, you can sort things out to, to see if does this particular behavior or strategy spring from culture or is this more biological in origin and it's just being expressed through some sort of cultural filter. So why do you study uh, monkeys to study people, and how is your research sort of attacking that question of origins? Yeah, so, I mean, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, really. We want to know where some of these biases come from, right? And it, it's a kind of strange thing to think that they might come from something within our phylogeny or something that we're built to do, because usually when we think of the kinds of things we might be built for, we think of like smarter sorts of decisions and smarter sorts of capacities, right? You kind of build it. Natural selection wants to build in the stuff that's particularly smart and the stuff that's going to help you get out and survive and make good decisions and reproduce and so on. Um, so it's a little bit strange to think that some of our biases might be built in. Um, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, as you've seen on your show tons of time, like people don't overcome these biases as quickly as you'd think, right? Like a lot of our heuristics seem to be ingrained. You know, you hear about them and you hear that you shouldn't do them, but that doesn't stop you from, you know, showing the, the bias on the next example that you give. Um, and that suggested to us that some of these things might be a bit more automatic than we expect. Um, and they might be a little, a little bit more deeply ingrained than we expected. And so that was one of the reasons we started to turn to to monkeys to try to see, well, if these things are really evolutionarily old, maybe we're not the only species that shows them. I mean, we're the only species that has podcasts about biases and, and rich <laughs> economic markets and these things, but, um, you know, maybe these strategies are there for something much older. And so we kind of embarked on this mission to study biases and irrationalities in the monkeys. And, and, you know, we've been really surprised with some of the similarities we've seen so far. Yeah, that is, uh, it is, it is so cool. It is so such an awesome uh, way to attack this problem, and um, it also and means I get to hang out with like fun furry creatures in warm places, <laughs> which you know has a, has a nice perk too. And and we should uh, note, of course, that these are these uh, these are not our uh, just anyone who may still have that foggy notion. These are not our ancestors, but we share an ancestor. We but we know all the evidence suggests we share an ancestor. So that's right. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, we'd be able to run all our studies with direct ancestors, like Australopithecine or Homo erectus or something. But 
it's it's hard to recruit subjects because they're all dead. So, um, <laughs> you know, we, we would we would be like waiting for some folks to sign up for a long time. And so we kind of need to use a proxy. And it's worth remembering that they are a proxy. You know, they too have been on their own evolutionary path for 35 million years, but they're still one of the best windows that, that we have into what's going on in, in human cognition. Would I be right? And in, in tell me if I'm just... Uh an idiot, but the, um, it, like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like big cats and house cats, you know, like the, they share a lot of similar behaviors, but they have a, and they have a, um, and they look very similar and they both respond to certain, um, uh, chemicals. And I've seen like tigers and lions will play around in catnip and stuff like that. Exactly. But they're, but you know, they, if you look on their evolutionary tree, they share a common ancestor many millions of years ago. Uh, yet they still have many of the same behaviors and we can sort of maybe uh it may be true that they they've inherited those both the big cats and the small cats uh the house cats have inherited those behaviors from a common a common ancestor a long time ago right yep and that's the idea between you know us and them right we um you know we each have kind of primate like brains and primate like hands and those come from a common ancestor that we shared back in the day you know we both got it a long time ago and we've kept it over our evolutionary path and, and that's what we're trying to look at with some of these biases. The idea is that maybe it's not just modern humans that show this stuff. Maybe this wound up turning up in our primate lineage way back in the day. And therefore, we, we both kind of stuck with it over evolutionary time. And, and if so, then we can kind of use other species as kind of a window back into our past. They're kind of like a little experimental time machine, you know, because we can kind of get a glimpse of the kind of stuff we shared with our common ancestor way back in the day by seeing similarities. Um, yeah, that's fantastic, and and um, I I like that it's not just purely uh, speculation. That it's not like maybe people like berries because berry, you know, there, it's yep. a it's uh you're actually out there in the trenches actually uh, doing crazy stuff like creating monkey marketplaces, which mm-hmm. is uh, <laughs> I love I love that you named it that. Tell me what is a monkey marketplace? What do you, what goes on in there? Well, we, we kind of devised the monkey marketplace. Um, and when I say we, it's, it's uh, myself in collaboration with a student, Venkat Lakshman Arayanan, um, and a colleague, Keith Chen, who's an economist um, at, uh, at UCLA. And what, what we decided to do together was to come up with a way that we could test whether or not monkeys had these biases. Now, most of the human biases you see in the context of these little, you know, financial gambles, right? Do you want $1,000 now or blah, blah, blah. And so what we wanted to do was to test the monkeys using the same methods as, as folks have, have tested the same biases in people. And that meant trying to teach the monkeys their own currency so we'd have kind of a unit about which to ask them. Um, of course, monkeys don't use money, so this was kind of you know experimental hurdle number one. Um, but it turned out that there was lots of evidence that uh, other primates were pretty good at using these little tokens to trade with people for food and other resources. And so we said, well, let's let's train our capuchin monkeys to use some tokens, um, and we'll just try to see you know from that training what do they understand about it. And so we introduced um, monkeys to little tokens. They're, they're little uh, metal washers that we just got at uh, Home Depot. Um, and we taught the monkeys that they could kind of trade those washers with people for food. Um, our, our, our capuchins are really curious 
little critters, you know, they walk over and pick up these tokens. As soon as they see them, like, what are these weird things? And they see this, this human in the center who's like holding a piece of food. And so they kind of come over to see what's that food. And the human kind of swaps the food for the, the token. And really with a couple of experiences just like this, the monkeys pick up like, oh, I get it. Like I, I give them this token and then I get some food. Um, that was kind of step one. And then step two was to see, you know, who we just taught them some strange party trick or did the monkeys really understand something about these tokens like a real fiat currency, you know, something that they could trade and that held on to value and that they cared about kind of maximizing their value of and so on. And so uh, to test this, we um, quite literally put the monkeys into their own market. Um, whenever the monkeys wanted some food, they could come out of their big social enclosure through this little tunnel, which is where we do our testing. Um, and when they got to the end of the tunnel, they'd see a little wallet filled with tokens. Um, and what they could do is just spend those tokens to buy food in any way they wanted. Um, usually they had a choice of two different experimenters in the lab, just students in the lab who wore different clothing um, and sold food at different prices. Um, so the monkeys could use their, their token to buy a, a one grape from one experimenter, or they could buy one apple piece from an, a second experimenter. And we just asked, how do they spend um, how do they spend their budget? And we were in interested in whether they, they did some of the rational things that people do. You know, people aren't all heuristics and biases. You know, sometimes we show these sort of rational behaviors. <laughs> um, and we wanted to see whether the monkeys were kind of rational in some of the same spots as people are. And so we asked, do they try to maximize expected value? So if they have a choice between a guy who's selling one grape and a guy who's selling two grapes, do they kind of shop at the guy who gives them more? Um, the surprising answer, even with really little training, was yes. Um, the monkeys, when they had that choice, they shopped at rates of about 80 or 90% at the guy who was giving them twice as much food. Um, we also found that they could... Uh, calculate the risk of different experimenters. So sometimes we gave them choices between experimenters who did different things on different trials. And we found they could kind of average what people did over time to get a sort of average expected value from the different experimenters. Um, it, it was pretty remarkable, particularly when dealing with um, kind of output and price, is that the monkeys seem to do exactly what we would expect of human traders. Um, my, my colleague Keith is fond of saying that if you just had the monkey's data in a spreadsheet and you didn't know, you, you'd think they were um, price shifting as well as a human <laughs> trader, you know? So, um, so, so they, were, they were pretty sharp with this market. That is uh, so awesome. And, and like, you know, we, I think we could probably, I mean, we can assume that money and marketplaces and these are sort of cultural inventions uh, that human beings have created. And, um, and there are certain aspects of that you'll find in different, uh, primates. Like, uh, I've seen there, there are primate, there are monkeys that will, um, you know, they will, they'll dive for clams and then they will use rocks to open the clams. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some that, uh, the famously the, the, um, the ones that, that wash, uh, potatoes, that yep. sort of stuff. So these are things, you know, there's not a, there's not something in the, there's not a gene. There's not a, a part of the brain that says wash potatoes or there's a, you know, yeah. or, uh, or, no, they're, or, they're good at socially learning and good good at picking this stuff up. The, the other thing is like in their natural environment, they have all these kind of market-like structures that they have to navigate. Um, so 
if you've seen any nature videos, you know, like other primates, you know, groom one another. And there's this question about like, you know, how long should you groom somebody? And should you care about how much they groomed you? And should you get your grooming expected value and so on? And <laughs> and, and lots of biologists have, have talked about this term biological markets, right? The kind of real goods and services um, that animals exchange with one another. And they, they have to track that stuff. Probably some of the, the heuristics we're using are, are the ones that are built for those kinds of markets. And we just kind of, you know, added fiat currencies and exchange oh, rates yeah. and 401ks and this other stuff. But, but the strategies are much older. That is great. Yes. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And the so it's, uh, you know, when you're in the dorm room and you're having that conversation where you're like, uh, hey, man, you know, the your money's just paper. <laughs> like, why, <laughs> why, uh, uh, this, why do we care about paper? Like, you really just say, like, you're discovering without realizing it, <laughs> the difference between, like, culture and biology. You know, this exactly. is, and, but the way we interact with that thing that we invented seems like it may actually have um, a more deeply evolutionary origin that it's, off comes off of primate foundations and before we get into that though like one of the things that you um that you researched was you know specifically certain things from uh psychology certain irrational behaviors we can reliably see pop up over and over again with human beings one of them that i um mentioned earlier in the show was uh this um if you had a choice between receiving a thousand dollars and you're given a chance to add to it or you're given two thousand dollars and given a chance to lose some of it mm-hmm. um you have uh you'll have a slightly different, um, you'll have a different response to it depending on the frame. So could you sort of take us through how you presented that exact same problem to monkeys and what you discovered? Yeah, so so we knew we could present the monkeys with kind of guys who varied in risk. Um, We could also present them with um, different experimenters who seem to give either bonuses or gains or, or in contrast, losses. Um, and so we gave the monkeys the, the $1,000 scenario by um, introducing monkeys to, to two different traders. They both started with a, a small amount of food, so um, one piece of apple, um, but we had them both give bonuses. So the first experimenter gave a safe bonus. He always added a second apple piece to the one apple piece, so he gave always two. Um, the, but the monkeys could choose this guy or the second guy that guy also started with one piece of apple. Um, half the time he didn't add anything. Half the time he gave a big bonus to give the monkeys three. And so the, the expected value across the two is the same. They, they get two expectedly, um, but they kind of vary in whether the, how, how risky they are. So the first guy is safe and the second guy is pretty risky. And what we find there is that the monkeys, um, they tend to go with the safe guy. They tend to go with a, a consistent bonus of an extra one for two. Um, which is fine. You know, that could just be that the monkeys are kind of avoid risk, just like humans. What we really wanted to see was whether the monkeys showed the framing effect. In other words, did they change their preference for risk when they were dealing with losses versus gains? And so to test that, we gave the monkeys a second scenario with the same option for risk and the same expected value at the end. It's just this time we framed it as a loss. And to do that, we introduce the monkeys to two new traders. They each start with three pieces of apple, except this time both experimenters are going to take some away. And so the first guy takes some away safely. He always starts with three, and every single trial he takes one away to give two. Um, And the second guy is risky. So the second guy starts with three. Half the time he doesn't take any away, but half the time he takes a lot away to give the monkeys only one. And so expected value is exactly the same. The amount of risk is exactly the same. But what we find is that the monkeys here shift their preference. So now instead of going with the safe guy, they tend to shop at the risky experimenter. Um, <laughs> amazingly, they show exactly the same framing effect that, that people show. 
um, which which we found to be kind of both surprising and, and kind of pretty cool. It is cool. And, you know, this this problem, like a lot of problems in this uh, in this realm of psychology, I always have to I always sit down and, and write it out so that yeah, I can yeah. understand <laughs> I can, so I can understand why am I why can't I see this the way it actually is the first time through? Because, you know, when you write it out, it's like one guy, uh, it's it's one grape always adds one. So you always get two. Yep. And the other guy, one grape or one ap- slice of apple uh, sometimes gives you two, sometimes nothing. So it's either three or one. And then the second run, it's three, three pieces of food, always takes one, end mm-hmm. up with two. Other person... Uh, start out with three, sometimes take two, sometimes, and so it's one or three. So it's always, it's the same thing every time. Yeah, always, time. always they, two. They showed us before, which was cool, that they like, they can track this, right? They can track expected value. They know when it's the same thing every time. It's just when you set up the frame, when it now, when it looks like a bonus, it's like, ooh, cool bonuses. Like, you better get that consistently. And when it's a loss, it's like, oh no, this is terrible. How can I avoid this? Let me take on way more risk. I mean, right. it, it's really incredible. I do, I do it immediately. Like even knowing it's coming up, I still feel these feelings. Mm-hmm. And then, and even though I know it's the exact same scenario, it still feels different. And I've shown this to, uh, you know, other people just this week. So I was like, wanted to see it in action <laughs> and, yeah. and everyone, everyone makes the same mistake. Yep. Um, the other thing so, that fu- I find funny is when I talk about this stuff, um, it's curious people's reaction to their own mistake, you know, cause people can do the math. They know their intuition is like wrong and it, it's always pretty funny to people when they realize what they're doing wrong. Right. I think this is one of the great things about your podcast is that some of our own reactions to our own, own dumb biases is to kind of find them really funny. And I don't, I don't know why we, why we find our irrationality funny, but, but yeah, but that, that's the reaction. Um, the monkeys aren't meta aware enough to realize they've done something silly, but, um, if they were, maybe they would find it humorous too. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's um, th- what makes what the reason I love what you do so much is that it um, I get uh, this question all the time, which is when we talk about irrational behavior and flawed judgments and quirky decision making, all that stuff is that uh, people are always like, well, if I'm so sm- if people are so smart, you know, if we can make cities and iPhones and cure polio, what why are we so dumb in all these other ways? And how did we ever get here if mm-hmm. all this stuff was between us and doing the right thing? Um, I'm interested to hear what, how you would answer that question. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, natural selection can't build an ideal world, right? It's got to work with the materials it has. Um, and sometimes it just does the best with a bad set of kind of ingredients. Um, and so it often ends up in these sort of local minima where some strategy is good for some stuff. It ultimately might be bad, but if it's not so bad that you're really taking a kind of fitness or a reproductive hit, it's probably okay and it's going to hang out, right? Um, you know, if you you look in our eye, you can see that we have this sort of funny blind spot, which is kind of an accident of the way the eye's organized. You know, we got all kinds of weird stuff floating around in our bodies, like appendices, like just stuff we, you know, that might, it, we design it differently if we were designing from scratch, but that's not how it works. And and that's one possibility with these strategies, right? Like maybe they're just, we, we're not going to, do the kinds of calculations we can do with supercomputers in our head. We're not going to be perfectly rational like an economist. We just got this blob of brain tissue. That's what we're working with. You know, maybe we're making the best that we can. We're doing the best that we can given that. Another possibility, though, is that these strategies get used for all kinds of things that they weren't meant for. And so a second possibility is that these kinds of heuristics are good for something. It's just we kind of apply them in strange ways. 
And, you know, if you think back to the, the biological markets I was talking about, you get hints that, that some of the biases we're seeing might be more useful in that context, right? So, you know, like you're, you're now a monkey in the forest and you have to decide how long to groom somebody, right? So you run into Bob and you have to say, all right, how long do I groom Bob? Well, you know, abs absolute terms of grooming don't make much sense here, right? Like you, you wouldn't want to think like an economist and figure out your absolute amount of grooming. You'd probably want to use a heuristic, right? And it might be like, how long did Bob groom me yesterday? Well, if it was one hour, then great, you know, groom him for one hour. Um, you know, if it was two hours, like, and then you have to kind of step it up. And, and that gets you to something like the bias that we're showing, what, what folks call reference dependence, this idea that we're setting up these frames, we're setting up these reference points. Um, and it also gets us to be a little bit loss averse, right? Like, you know, it shouldn't matter how much Bob absolutely groomed you, but if he groomed you less than you groomed him, like, then you need some mechanisms to get upset about that and find it reverse and so on. And so, mm -hmm. so I think one nice thing about this work is that it reframes these things from like biases and errors and it, it puts in perspective like, well, could these kinds of strategies be useful for something? And maybe we're kind of just applying them in strange ways now, but, but that doesn't mean over time they were bad for stuff. That's great. See, um, so, you know, they're adaptive, but not, uh, not for everything, you know? not for everything. Um, they're being, they're being yeah. placed in weird scenarios, right? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, we, we see that with, a lot of the kinds of strategies that natural selection has built in, right? Like I have a strategy built in for many years over primate evolution to like seek out sweet fatty foods. You know, it's like I have a like, you know, Krispy Kreme detector in my head <laughs> that goes off and says, yes, yes, I have, that, I have that same detector. Yeah. And, and that was useful when, you know, you and I had ancestors that were, you know, running around the savannah where there were no Krispy Kremes everywhere. Like we, we had to do our best to find Krispy Kreme like things because, you know, it was hard to get food and to get the right number of calories. You know, now, you know, millions of years later, you and I are, you know, walking around the streets of our favorite cities and those things are everywhere. They were useful back then, but they're not now and they're still pretty hard to shut off, right? And so, mm -hmm. so often these things that were useful back then are kind of playing out in these contexts that, you know, natural selection at the time of our ancestors never could have imagined. Um, and it looks bad now, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean it was bad back in the day when we were really using them. You know, I think this all the time, uh, and I, this, I have zero evidence for this. This is just some crazy stuff that pops in my head. But I, I think that, um, you know, like you're part of what you're saying, what you've done here is you've taken these strange things that we've created, um, like these things that these monkeys wouldn't do naturally that are adaptive, that don't necessarily pose many problems to them in their natural habitat and their normal undisturbed monkey lives. Mm -hmm. But uh, you've uh, sort of, you foisted upon them these human created uh, institutions, and then and then the the behavior gets gets expressed sort of the same way we, we do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, that would normally be adapted for one scenario, but then you put them in our scenarios, and they're like, oh, okay, I'll go with the guy that gives you this. And yep. the uh, the I see in like uh, you see a lot of this, not just the Krispy Kreme example, but I think that this is sort of also happening in um, you know like with with twin Twitter uh, on Twitter and uh, other social media. You know, here's an a absolutely new environment for our behaviors to express themselves and to be and to flourish in ways they've never flourished. And like uh, you get things like Twitter dog piles where people mm -hmm. get absolutely, you know, assaulted by thousands of people over, you know, one thing that they've said or, or, or maybe a misunderstanding or maybe they're appropriately being a, um, being lambasted. And either way, it's a completely new way to express a very old Mm -hmm. uh, pattern of behavior, you know, this, this social manifestation of, of, um, of, of an old, um, 
probably primate paradigm is really crazy to see how that works out. And I think I see it in a lot of places. Like every time we create new technology and we sort of create a new way of being a person, we have to, each of us become better at being, uh, at controlling, um, a lot of these old strategies because, uh, just like you have to be a good user of the brain when you discover that you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you have to become a good user of the brain when you discover that I can't instantly just say whatever I feel like to millions of people. Uh, and and I think we also have to be, become better, um, makers of technology, right? Like you, you could imagine that if the designers of Twitter or Facebook or whatever knew more about primate behavior and our heuristics, they might design things a little bit differently because it's tricky. In my experience, a lot of these strategies are tricky to overcome without the right situation. Like, um, I mean, your podcast is fantastic, but folks will leave here and they're still going to have the intuition when they see that thousand dollar problem of what they should do. And they're still going to look like a monkey. Right, um, and that means that the, the the onus in some ways is on the folks who create these structures to try to create them in ways that don't allow our biases to kind of go crazy and wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there there are intuitions in in some of the the business and policy worlds about how we can do this. You know, we've seen uh, I think a lot of headway in how to design um, better situations with regard to our food biases and stuff like that. Um, folks have have better intuitions about how to do that, and I think the more we think about that like not just in like policy or political domains, but in domains that we face in everyday life, like on Twitter and like on these kinds of strange apps and so on, um, people will be a lot happier because it's tricky to get folks in the moment to rein in their biases. It's better just to set them up so the biases won't, won't run amok in a particular situation. Right, yeah. And you know, part of it is just, I mean, it's just we, we seem to have this confidence that, well, I'm not going to fall for that. I mean, like, exactly, like, yeah. like yeah. Like, I'm, or like now I know, you know, now I know now about reference dependence and loss aversion. Like I, I won't fall for that. But um, my my co- colleague who's a philosopher here at Yale, Tamar Gendler, and I have uh, christened what we, we hope will take as a new bias name. We call it the the GI Joe fallacy. Um, okay, okay, tell I'm me. Not, I'm not sure how this. old you are, David, but uh, if you're if you're a child of the '80s, uh, you know this terrible, terrible cartoon show called G.I. Joe or oh, yes, G.I. Joe. Anyway, yes, I've seen, I've seen every episode. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, that it ends with, you know, this sort of like, you know, parable at the end where, um, G.I. Joe gives this important information and the child says, well, now I know. And like knowing is half the battle. <laughs> right. And, uh, uh, tomorrow and I say that the G.I. Joe fallacy is that knowing is not half the battle when it comes to these biases. You can know about these biases like crazy. You could be complete experts in them and written papers about them, but that doesn't mean you're not going to experience them as soon as you're put in the right situation. And so we think this is yet another bias, right? That people, people think once they know about these biases, they, that's kind of most of it and they kind of go away. But actually, you know, in our view, it's, it's not half the battle. It's probably more like, you know, maybe a 10th or a fifth of the battle <laughs> if I had to measure it. But, um, but we, but it's amazing to us that, even experts have this fallacy. Um, you see this sometimes in you know, some of my favorite popular books about heuristics and biases. They have this part in the introduction and in the discussion of like, that kind of reads like a G.I. Joe parable, but like, now you know and go off into the world. And, and I think that, that is a fallacy. We're, we're just not going to shut this stuff off easily. Um, it, t- to me, it's going to work a lot like, you know, my Krispy Kreme bias that like you know, every time somebody plops a holiday cookie in front of me, I'm going to, you know, have my hunter-gatherer brain telling me to eat it. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how much I know my cholesterol or, you know, know how bad it is or know the nutrition content. I'm just going to want to eat it. And my guess is every time you see a scenario structured like that $1,000 problem, 
you're just going to have the intuition to avoid the losses, even if you mm -hmm. know better. And so, and this, this raises a challenge, right? Because the normal ways we teach people stuff don't work for, for evolutionarily old biases. And I think that gives our species some new challenges when we find biases that are really old that we want to overcome. We can't just kind of train people out of them, as, as I think lots of economists have thought for a while. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I think we, we have to get better and creatively design better situations. And that's what's going to um, release us from their hold. Well, I certainly think that there is a, um, there's some sort of um, movement, you know, happening in, across several different disciplines. And, mm -hmm. and, your, and your research is, is like a huge portion of, of that movement. And, uh, and, you know, it's definitely in the popular culture now, which means that um, people are thinking about it and noticing it. And there's a sort of a, a several, I've read from several different, um, you know, several people have written on this sort of looking at it as a shift, like uh, mm -hmm. going, going from geocentrism to heliocentrism, you know, like it's going from uh, putting human beings, uh, you know, taking human beings slowly, carefully, you know, gingerly mm -hmm. offering a hand and taking them off of this pedestal so that we can be better at uh, building better institutions and stuff that sort of reflect how we really are instead of how we, we would like to be and how we think we could be. And the, the funny uh, thing for me is like, it, it doesn't seem like we have a hard time with this in other domains outside of rationality, right? Like, you know, like we, we have certain biological limitations, right? You're not in my town right now. We're talking via Skype. You know, your listeners are listening via a podcast. We're okay with our biological limitation of how far our voice throws. We develop technology to deal with that, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm sitting here wearing contact lenses. I have this biological limitation about what I can see. I, I don't feel bad or feel embarrassed that I need contact lenses to see better. I just like see better. The funny thing is like when it comes to our psychology, we don't like to admit that we need these kind of crutches, even though like every other part of our biology and our nature, we, we've like had to enhance it somehow. Like why not have to enhance our, our rationality and our decisions? Somehow it feels weird um, in this way that other things don't. I, and I think your, your analogy to like geocentrism is a good one. It's in part because like, you know, we don't like admitting that we're not like the top dog and the top place in nature and, you know, this perfect, rational, godlike thing. We, we don't like admitting that stuff. And those are the domains where we really need a lot of work to have a paradigm shift. And, mm -hmm. and, and I agree, it feels like it's happening now, which is really exciting because my sense is like so many of the problems that we face as a species, as a planet, all this stuff, you know, these days it has to do with human behavior. It has to do with human choices. So unless we get this stuff right, um, we're, we're in for a, a not fun ride, I guess. I, I, yeah, to, I mean, I was having lunch, uh, no, I was having breakfast with my, with my father just the other day and he was t telling me about his strategy at the casino whenever he gets on a run, mm -hmm. whenever, he, whenever he's like, you know, when the cards are winning, you know, they're winning. That's when you got to stay. And I'm like, well, look, let me, and I started to like, I started to explain this whole thing about, you know, you know, random patterns and when it looks like a run and la 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 la. And it's just, um, it's so, it's so built into who, what we are as people, like even, yeah. uh, uh, you know, even no matter how educated or how worldwise you are, you, you will fall prey to this stuff. And it's good to know that this stuff exists. Hopefully, um, it's getting out there and I know that your work is helping with it. And well, thanks. No, and I love it. And I, um, to sort of like, uh, leap out of that place, uh, there was, uh, I've, uh, noticed that your most recent research is starting to reveal some ways that maybe you're teasing out the unique, some sort of unique human qualities. You no, know, if our human mind is built on a sort of shared primate foundation, mm -hmm. 
on top of that, they're going to have some things that we don't, and we're going to have some things that they don't. So what are some things that you've discovered uh, or uh, that seem to be coming out of your research that are uniquely human? Yeah, well, uh, this stuff has been especially fun. I mean, in part because we got into this stuff expecting to see differences, right? I mean, again, we're the only ones having these podcasts. They're not. So like something's different, right? So uh, what is it? But uh, what, what we're starting to find is that some of the things that are different might make us uniquely irrational in some interesting ways. Um, and the the first spot where, that we saw this came out of some studies we were doing to see if monkeys show Showed, uh, some classic price biases. Um, this is just the bias that as humans, we tend to confuse um, price and, and value or price and quality might be, even be a better way to say it. We tend to mm-hmm. think things that are more expensive are just going to be better. Um, even if you took exactly the same good and just gave it a higher price tag, we tend to see it as better. So if I um, poured a glass of wine from a bottle that you saw had a, a $10 price tag, you'd sip it and think it tasted some way. Um, but if I took exactly the same wine and just added a $100 label, you would subjectively think that the, the wine tasted better, um, sometimes as high as three times better just because I gave it a better price tag. Um, perhaps even more impressively, uh, folks like Dan Ariely and his colleagues have data suggesting that um, if you pay more for a pain medication, it actually works better. The same pain medication will work better if you pay a ton of money for it versus if you got it really cheaply. Um, so somehow these these kinds of price biases, because kind of confusion between higher prices and, and higher kind of quality um, seems pretty robust. And we wanted to see if we could see the same thing in the monkeys. And when we started this work, we, based on the, the other uh, findings we had, we kind of thought the monkeys would show this because um, the original work I did with Keith Chen and, and Venkat Lakshman-Rayanan showed that the monkeys knowed a lot, they knew a lot about price. Um, they uh, responded to sales. They kind of obeyed standard economics pricing models. We thought they kind of got price in the same way as people do. And so we thought, you know, given that they get price, maybe they'll show this bias too. And so we introduced the monkeys to different new foods, different new brands of food, um, and we taught them in the market information about price. So they learned when they went shopping, like, ooh, this um, this this uh, brand of Jello costs a lot of money, um, whereas this other brand of Jello is pretty cheap. Um, we taught them all that stuff, and then we put the monkeys in a situation where they didn't have to spend anything to get the food. They kind of went to like a free monkey buffet. Um, and the idea there was that we could just see which ones they liked better. And so the intuition is you might, you know, see a $100 bottle of wine at your market, but not buy it because you're trying to like maximize your wine dollar. But if you went to a free holiday buffet and you saw that really expensive bottle of wine there, that might be the one you tried. And so, so we did this with the monkeys. We just basically let them eat whichever foods they wanted. And what we found across a bunch of different studies was that like the monkeys just didn't fall for it. You know, they had their preference for which one they liked and they just didn't change it depending on the price. Um, and we did a bunch of controls to show that the monkeys understood the prices. They, they kind of got the study. They just like weren't showing this effect. And so it seems like this was the first spot in our market studies where we were finding that the monkeys were um, uh, more rational than people. In other words, that people were kind of uniquely irrational. Um, and this got us to thinking, you know, why, why in this domain are we like doing something weird? And it, it got us thinking more about what kind of information people take from price. I mean, one thing mm-hmm. is like all the, you know, economic stuff like supply and demand, et cetera, et cetera. But, but another thing I think we take from price is we take a certain amount of social information from it, right? Mm-hmm. The reason I like the $100 wine is I know like this is the wine that like rich people get. Like when I'm in a, a posh restaurant in my town and I see the like super expensive wine, I'm like, 
some, you know, investment banker who comes to this restaurant, like that's the one that he's getting. Um, and so we started to think that it might be this social information that humans might uniquely start falling for. Um, and this is uh, some work we're kind of following up on now is that we might be uniquely automatically susceptible to the preferences and actions of others in a way that is special to our line in evolutionary history. Like it, in fact, there, there's evidence that even our, our closest ancestors, chimpanzees, might not kind of conform as much to the kind of bad strategies and bad preferences of people. Um, and we're starting to think that this might be a set of heuristics in which we're special, kind of like follow other people to your peril. Um, it might not be as evolutionarily old as we, as we would like to think, um, which is kind of funny because folks often talk about, you know, monkey see, monkey do. It actually doesn't seem to be it. It seems more to be uh, sort of human see, human do. It's kind of yeah. interesting. That is so fantastic. That is, uh, that is, that is exciting. That is, I mean, like the, um, I'm just thinking of a buffet with, with like cheeseburgers and cheese sticks <laughs> and caviar and, and, uh, and, uh, um, you know, fine cheeses and, you know, uh, and human beings going free caviar. Yeah. <laughs> this stuff's really expensive, you know, and yeah, it's a, I sometimes wonder that too with these kind of, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I study this stuff is I'm so susceptible to these biases. I have all the wrong intuitions when it comes from this stuff. And, um, particularly with the pricing biases, you know, I'll go into my shop and see this like posh, tiny chocolate truffle and eat it and be like, Oh, this is so delicious. And like, part of me is like thinking about this research and being like, you know, this probably tastes exactly <laughs> the same as that huge hunking bar of Hershey's uh, chocolate. But, um, but yeah, but, uh, but, but I do think that we see these things in the economic domain, but it's part of a broader kind of new thing that humans do, which right. is we kind of rely on the information of others. Um, it's one of the reasons we have like language. It's one of the reasons we have podcasts. It's one of the reasons we just kind of share stuff. Um, but that has a, a downside, which is that it, learning other people's information affects what we think and what we believe and what we prefer. Um, sometimes that's good if you surround yourself with smart information, but um, mm -hmm. in the case of these kinds of pricing biases, it might, it might be bad in some cases too. I'm going to, I'm going to call it the, the Louis Vuitton fallacy. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, and you know, what I, what's so refreshing about this way of attacking this problem is that it's so, um, you know, it just seems like it's getting results and it's not, it's just, there's so much in when you start to get, when you start to get approached the evolutionary question, it gets so speculative and it can get really, um, uncomfortable and weird and, and, and sometimes nonsensical and silly and, and eye rolly. Uh, and this just seems like it's, it's, it's actually, uh, it's getting the goods and I really like it. I, I love what you're up to. Yeah. It's, we think it's a fun kind of empirical way to test this stuff. And, and another great thing for us is like, there are lots of cases where we've been surprised, right? Like you, you really have to do these kinds of empirical studies to, to understand if your intuitions about what should be unique to humans or what should be special, you, you got to kind of ask the animals to see what they do. Um, and sometimes, and even experts like me are often surprised by what we get, what we, <laughs> what we find. So I know, I know people are going to be like, I have to keep up with everything this person's doing. How can people find you out there and keep up with what you're up to? Um, they should, uh, check out some of our work, um, on our, our lab website. Um, these days the lab website is, uh, doglab.yale.edu. Um, and the reason it's dog lab is that, uh, we've been trying to look at if there's a non-human species that, that might be as interested in social information and social copying as people. Um, and that has led us to some new studies on, uh, domesticated dogs. Um, so we've been bringing, uh, 
pet dogs from the New Haven area uh, into our new center to do some economic studies on dogs. Um, and so, uh, so that's kind of the new line of work, um, which you can check out at doglab.yale.edu. Um, folks should also uh, check out some of the uh, stuff we talk about on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is just my name, uh, Lori Santos, um, on Twitter. All right, ma'am, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is all great stuff, and I wish you great fortune in your endeavors. It's so cool. Thanks so much. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Next time, we'll have cookies. We'll have news from the world of psychology and all, all new guests and all that kind of stuff. I would like to thank our Patreon supporters. Oh, my God. Here's some of them. Real or Real Maxwell. Either way, that's a cool name. And Patrick Stewart, not the Patrick Stewart, but maybe. Vasa, Matt, Adrian Crary, Sally Gallagher, Brian Colon, Jesse Nelson, Rob, Chris Jansen, Yama Takamoto, Scott Jennings, Jeff <laughs> Lawrence Lanoff, Sean McDonald, Tony Quinones, and Derek and ML Cohen and Katie and Samuel and Mike Wood. I could keep going. There's so many of you. Thank you so much. Your support on Patreon is keeping this show going. It's making it better. Thank you. If you want to support the show on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. This music is Banjo Apocalypse. The other music in the show was Drew Garraway. And the opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. If you would like to find more episodes, get show notes, all that kind of stuff, go to youarenotsosmart.com. Check out boingboing.net for more great episodes of more great podcasts. And you can find us at Facebook. Almost 250,000 people following us on Facebook now. You can follow us on Twitter at not smart blog and me personally i am at david mccraney thank you so much see you in the next episode new stuff bye-bye This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. 
is designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.